This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Amen. Well, open your Bibles this morning to the gospel of Mark. And if you're new today, we have been walking through the Gospel of Mark for some months, and I had planned for us to finish this journey on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Day, and uh, we are going to do that. And so today, we are going to begin at the cross. We finished up last week in verse 39 of chapter 15, and so today we're going to begin in verse 40, and we're going to read into chapter 16 and verse 8. And today we're going to focus on the witnesses in Mark to the resurrection of Christ. Our faith in the resurrection is something that is not sort of a blind leap of faith. It's something that is based on eyewitness testimony. And so today we're going to, to see how the witnesses are called in from Mark and from some other places as well. But let's begin reading with verse 40 of chapter 15 in Mark today. Last week we, we finished as Jesus breathes his last on the cross. And so we're going to pick up there today. There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us at the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, 
for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the incredible truth of the resurrection. And Lord, I pray for every person in this room today. I pray that you would work in lives through the good news of the gospel today. Lord, we're at different points in our journey. Uh, there are some here perhaps who have not yet turned to Jesus and, and trusted him as their savior and king. And Lord, I pray that today would be a day of new beginnings and eternal life for them. Lord, there are other, others of us that, that know you as our savior and, and king. And we pray that you would take the reality of the resurrection today and that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would infuse in us a deeper love for you, a deeper love for others and, and help us to, to embrace in a deeper way the calling that you have placed upon us to be on mission for you, our risen King in this world. And so we pray that you would, would speak now. We pray that you would, would not let anything hinder what you would desire to do in our lives in these next few minutes. And we ask it in the name of Jesus, amen. In his uh, new book, Making Sense of God, Tim Keller uh, gives an illustration to talk about how hope for the future changes the way that we experience the present. And he tells in the book a story about uh, two women who are doing an identical job. And so they come from similar uh, backgrounds and similar education and so forth. And, and both of them are hired to do the, the very same job and they do it under identical conditions. It's the same job, both of them, it's sort of an assembly line, and, and uh, they're both told, okay, you're gonna put part A into part B, and then you're gonna pass along what you've assembled, and you're gonna do this for eight hours every single day. And so they have the same conditions, they work in identical rooms with the same lighting and the same temperature and the same ventilation, everything is the same. They take their lunch at the same time, they have identical breaks, but with one difference. The first woman is told that at the end of the year, she's going to receive $30,000, and the second woman is told, you do this job, and at the end of the year, you're gonna receive $30 million. Well, sometimes the women talk on their breaks. And the first woman will sometimes complain about her job. And she'll say to the second woman, she'll say, can you believe how boring and monotonous and tedious this job is? I mean, aren't you just losing your mind? And the second woman says, you know, I kind of like my job. And uh, sometimes I just have to stop myself from just whistling while I work, so I won't, I won't annoy the people around me. Well, they're experiencing identical circumstances in a radically different way because of the difference of their hope for 
the future. Well, you know, the Bible tells us that as, as Christian believers that we have a hope for something a lot greater than $30 million. It tells us that our future involves glorified risen bodies in a perfect world with Christ forever. But all of that is predicated on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Without it, we have no hope. Now listen, the early Christians understood this very well. One of them, the Apostle Paul, says this in 1 Corinthians 15 and beginning in verse 14. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if Jesus really didn't rise from the dead, then we Christians are just living out this, this deluded, really pitiful fantasy and wasting our lives. Fortunately, as Paul says in the next verse, in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus has been raised, and his resurrection is the guarantee of the resurrection of all who trust in him. And in order to back that up, Paul calls in the witnesses in verses 5 through 8 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says of the risen Christ that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul here calls in the witnesses and he gives uh, several appearances of the risen Christ to people, including to 500, more than 500 at one time. And he says, many of them are still alive. In other words, you can go check it out if you'd like to. Go talk with them. And of course, the four gospels and the book of Acts give us even more eyewitness testimony. And today, we're going to look at the witnesses in the gospel that we've been studying, the gospel of Mark. Let's look at the witnesses in Mark. First of all, the women. Look at verses 40 and, and 41. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, verses 40 and 41 tell us something that we see in all four Gospels. And that is that women played a huge role in the ministry of Jesus. He treated women with a respect and a dignity that was virtually unheard of at that time and in that place when women were so looked down upon. 
But it says that these women were a huge part of his ministry. And, and, and when it says here that they ministered to him and that they followed him, these are imperfect verbs. In other words, their ministering and their following was not sort of sporadic. It was continuous. I mean, these women were model disciples of Jesus. And this goes along with a theme that we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, and that is that, that, that Jesus' ministry and message had a special appeal to the downtrodden, to the oppressed, to the outsider, to the outcast. And so it had a special attraction to, uh, to women, uh, to people from other places and races and um, religions, people like lepers, and not only physical lepers, but moral lepers, people who had messed up badly in life, people who were notorious sinners, found a message of forgiveness and grace and restoration and healing and hope in Jesus. And, and these, these women had certainly found hope in Jesus, but this hope they do not have. They have no hope that he is going to rise from the dead. And that's very obvious from the fact that they are bringing spices to anoint a corpse. They don't believe that Jesus is going to rise from the dead. They don't even have a category for that at this point. The second witness that we meet here is a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And we read about him in verses 42 through 46. It says, when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now the women were very much outsiders, regarded as outsiders by, in that culture. Now we meet a person who was very much an insider. Joseph of Arimathea, it says, was a member of the council. And when it talks about the council, it's talking about the Sanhedrin, the highest governing body in Israel and the very body that had recommended death for Jesus to the Roman governor, Pilate. And it, and it says that uh, Joseph was a respected member of the council. The word there means powerful, prominent, honorable. So listen, Joseph of Arimathea has a lot to lose by going against his peers, his colleagues on the Sanhedrin, but go against them, he certainly does. 
we learn more about him in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 23 and verses 50 and 51 says, There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. And now Joseph, who has already gone against his peers at great risk to himself by opposing their recommendation to sentence Jesus to death. Now, Joseph takes the extraordinary step of going before the very Roman governor who has ordered the execution of Jesus. And if you don't think that that was a big deal or that that took courage, consider the fact that Peter, the leader of the disciples, was scared out of his wits to even be associated with Jesus. And that the night Jesus was arrested, Peter had denied three times that he even knew Jesus. So Joseph is really throwing caution to the wind and taking this step of going before Pilate and requesting the body of Jesus. But he knows that if the body is not taken down from the cross before sunset, before the Sabbath begins, that it's going to be thrown into just a common grave. And Joseph can't stand the thought of that because Jesus has come to mean so much to him. He has become a disciple himself. And so he takes this extraordinary step of going before Pilate and requesting the body. He is going to give up his own garden tomb for the body to be buried in. And the Gospel of John tells us that Joseph was joined by one of his colleagues on the Sanhedrin, a man named Nicodemus. And this is the same Nicodemus that we read about in John 3, who would come to Jesus at that point in darkness, literally under the cover of night because he didn't want to be seen talking to him. But now Nicodemus takes courage and throws caution to the wind. And he joins Joseph of Arimathea. And the Gospel of John in chapter 19 tells us that Nicodemus brought a huge amount of spices to anoint the, the body of Jesus. So what you see in both of these men, in Joseph of Arimathea and in Nicodemus, is a desire to honor Jesus by giving him a proper burial. You know, I'm always moved as a pastor whenever I do a funeral that involves military honors. And the whole ceremony at the grave just moves me every time I see it, each part of it, and the folding of the flag, and that slow salute that the honor guard will, will do. There'll be a slow raising of the hand and salute, and then they hold the salute for a few seconds and then slowly lower their hand because you don't want to say goodbye to a fallen colleague flippantly, quickly. You wanna do that with honor. And that's what you see here. These men have a desire to honor Jesus by ensuring that he gets a proper burial. This is what you do not see. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, like the women, have no hope that he is going to rise from the dead. Joseph of Arimathea is giving a tomb for a corpse. Nicodemus is bringing spices to anoint a corpse. 
they are not looking for nor expecting him to rise from the dead. Now, in verse 47, Mark is very careful to add that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. They knew the tomb. They were watching. And that comes into play next. Because next we see the angel and the women. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So again, just like Nicodemus, what are they coming bringing? Spices. Spices to do what? Spices to anoint a corpse. A dead body. They're not expecting him to rise from the dead. Listen, as they walk to the tomb that morning, the question on their minds is not, gee, I wonder if he's risen from the dead. The question is, who is going to help us to roll this massive stone from the entrance of the tomb. Verses three and four. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Now here's a, a picture of the garden tomb in Jerusalem. And many people believe that this was the, the actual tomb. But whether it was or not is not the important thing. The important thing is that the body of Jesus is not in any tomb. <laughs> Praise God. But this is an example of sort of what a first century tomb looked like. Um, it was cut into the rock, like a man-made cave. And this is a picture of sort of what a stone would have looked like. So you can understand the concern of these women. I mean, this is incredibly heavy and difficult to roll. And so remember, these women are not accompanied by men. Where are the men? Where are the male disciples? They're all hiding in fear. And this brings up something else. All four gospels have the women as the first witnesses at the tomb. And that is very, very significant and a testimony to the authenticity of the four gospels for this reason. If the four gospels were trying to perpetrate a hoax, a resurrection hoax, if they were trying to convince people of this hoax, you can better believe they would not have had women as the first witnesses at the empty tomb. Why? Because of the way that women were regarded in the first century. The testimony of women was not even admissible in court in the first century. And so if they were trying to perpetrate a hoax to convince people, the last thing they would do would be to have the women as the first witnesses at the empty tomb, but they all do, which again is more testimony to their authenticity. Um, we see something else here, and that is the, the emphasis on details and names. In verse 47 of chapter 15, we see 
names. And again, in verse 1 of chapter 16, we see names. And again, many of these people were alive, still alive. When the gospel of Mark was written, it's an invitation to go and you can talk with them. <laughs> and it's more testimony to the fact that this is eyewitness testimony that we're seeing here. Jonathan Dodson and Brad Watson in their, their book, Raised, um, talk about the fact that you know, the resurrection of Christ it's sort of like a river. And let's imagine that on one side of the river, let's say, a high, let's say there's a highway, and the, and the river is, is splitting the highway, and the river is the resurrection. Well, on one side of the highway is doubt, and on the other side is belief. So let's say that you're going down the highway of doubt, and you come to this river of the resurrection that divides everything. So you're on the side of doubt, but you can look across the river and you can see people on the, the belief side. You can see there are people over there who have believed and you, you wonder, how can I get across this river? And you look over and you see this ferry kind of off to the side that can take you to the other side and that, that ferry is faith. But see, this is not blind faith. We are not asked to sort of like close our eyes and just wish hard that the resurrection is true. No, we are asked to cross this river with our eyes wide open because our faith is based on credible eyewitness testimony. Yes, it involves faith, but it's not blind faith. It's not like wish fulfillment. It's based on a real Event and that real event is attested to by hundreds of eyewitnesses who believed it so strongly that they were willing to give their lives for it. They were willing to be martyred for it. Would they really have done all of that for what they knew to be a hoax? Did all of them join together to per perpetrate this, this hoax, this conspiracy? I believe that it takes more faith not to believe the resurrection of Christ than it takes to believe in the resurrection of Christ. You know, there's something else that I think we need to get here as personal application from the fact that these women are, are at, they're fretting about a stone that has already been moved. How are we gonna move the stone? And they're, they're fretting about something that has already been accomplished. How many times do we fret about stones that have already been moved? How many times do we take on to ourselves burdens that we don't have to carry? And one day this came home to me. I was visiting a hospital and, you know, I think God puts us at certain places at certain times. And I believe he put me there on this day because I was carrying a lot of burdens. I was fretting about some things. And, and I stopped at a nurse's station. And I, was, I guess I was inquiring about, you know, where someone was. And I stopped at this nurse's station 
and I look up on the wall, and these busy nurses had, had put this on the wall behind them. Hello, this is God. I will be handling all your problems and concerns today. That's my job. Your job is to give them to me and then to trust me. So have a great day. <laughs> the next time that you're tempted to fret and to sweat as a believer, I want you to think of the resurrection of Christ. I want you to think about the fact that you have a God that loves you so much that he gave his son to die for your sins and a God with so much power that he raised his son from the dead. Quit fretting about stones that have already been moved. Jesus is alive and he's Lord. Let's look at verse, verse five. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Now, what stands out here in verse five is the contrast in the demeanor of the women and the demeanor of this angel, because they're freaking out as any of us would be. What's this angel doing? He's sitting there. He's just calm. It's like, Everything is under control, which is what he tells them next in verse 6. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. In other words, the angel is saying to them, you know, you've come seeking death. But this tomb is not about death. This tomb is about life. You have come bringing spices to anoint a corpse because you are seeking closure and you are seeking a proper ending. But this tomb is not about an ending. This tomb is about a new beginning. And notice here again in verses five and six how detailed and how down to earth that Mark is with his language. He says in verse five that the angel is, um, is sitting on the right side. Why, why is that detail even in there? Because that's characteristic of eyewitness testimony. Look at the language in, in verse six. He says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, really crucified. You were there. The women were there. You saw it. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And he points to the, the very place where the body was. This was a real body that really rose. The resurrection is not like sort of a, a motif. It's not, it's not like a metaphor. It's not sort of a spiritual experience. Jesus did not rise spiritually. And these people did not sort of experience some, some spiritual resurrection. They're not believing in a spiritual resurrection. Jesus rose bodily. These witnesses are believing in a bodily resurrection. This is concrete, down-to-earth language. This really happened. Verse 7. The angel tells them, but go. 
tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, I saw something in verse 7 that I had never seen in all my years of studying this. And it's the note of grace. This is why when you come to passages in the Bible that you've read many times, always read them. Try to ask, ask the Holy Spirit to help you to read them afresh and anew because the Bible is like a treasure trove that you're gonna continue to mine treasure from all of your life. I saw something in verse seven I've never seen until this week and that is just the sheer grace of this statement, the angel statement because listen, these disciples have blown it so badly. They have acted so cowardly the night that Jesus was arrested, what did they do? They all fled, they all deserted him. In his hour of greatest need, they were out of there. And so they're reeling in shame and humiliation and guilt. And you know, this angel could have said, hey, you know, tell those, tell those, go tell those uh, sniveling cowards uh, to, to go before, to go to Galilee, and you know, maybe if they grovel enough that Jesus will take them back. But instead, the angel says, Jesus wants them to go to Galilee, that he is going before them. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm there for you just like I always was, just like I'll always be. I'm going before you, I'm waiting for you. I love you, I'm there for you. See, this is a message of grace for people who have blown it badly. This is a message of forgiveness for those who have failed miserably. And that's what Christianity is. You know, Christianity is, is not a message for people who feel that they are worthy. It's for people who recognize that we are unworthy sinners, that we are undeserving of the grace of God, but that he has provided that grace and that there is forgiveness and there is a new beginning and there is healing and there is restoration and there is hope for the future for sinners like you and me and sinners like these disciples. Verse eight, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. We sung this earlier. Sometimes it, it causes me to tremble. Does it cause you to tremble? You say, well, why, why aren't the women just kind of you know, jumping up and down with excitement and joy at this point? Well, that's gonna come, but at this point, they're just awestruck. Are you awestruck by the resurrection of Christ, by the message of Easter, or you, do you just kind of take it for granted? You know, C.S. Lewis once said that if, if, if the resurrection did not happen, then Christianity is of no importance. But if the resurrection did, have, did happen, then Christianity is of infinite importance. The one thing that it cannot be is of moderate importance. It is either the most important thing in this universe if the resurrection happened, and if the resurrection didn't happen, it is of no consequence whatsoever. But it cannot be sort of moderately important. 
And so that means that, you know, we shouldn't be sort of moderately dedicated to Jesus or moderately in love with Christ. It's kind of it's all or nothing. Now, after verse 8, if you have a, a modern translation uh, of the Gospel of Mark, you'll, you'll notice that there's a, a line or maybe that verses 9 through 20 are in brackets. And it'll tell you there, it'll give you a note that says that verses 9 through 20 are not in the, the best and the earliest manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of Mark. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with verses 9 through 20. Okay, it's not, they're not, verses 9 through 20 don't change anything. Uh, they're, they're, you know, they're not going to hurt you. It's not that. It's just that they, they weren't in the oldest manuscripts that we have. And when it comes to manuscripts of the Bible, the best ones are the old ones. It's sort of the opposite of technology, okay? I don't think, if you use a cell phone, you probably don't, you're probably not wanting the one that you used like 15 years ago. You know, the big, bulky, heavy clunky thing. You, you want the, the, the newest one, right? So when it comes to technology, um, the newest is the coolest and the latest is the greatest. But when it comes to manuscripts of the Bible, you want to get back to the oldest ones. And fortunately, when it comes to the Bible, we have tons of old, great manuscripts. And so what that means is that when something has happened, like through the years, let's say a scribe made an error like in copying um, the Bible, put down a vowel wrong or something like that. Or on the rare occasions like this one, where it looks like that something's been put in later on, we know about it. We know it. Okay, and so actually that should increase your confidence and the trustworthiness of your, of your Bible. Um, but the question is, why does Mark end in this way. Was the, was the original ending of Mark lost? Was the back page of a manuscript torn off? That could have happened. Um, and if it did, then hey, we have three other gospels that tell us all about the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. But many scholars of Mark believe that Mark intentionally ends this way. We've seen throughout Mark that he uses an economy of words, right? Mark is by far the shortest of the four Gospels. And, 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 and Mark is very sparing a lot of times with his words, and, and a lot of times he does that by design. And there are some scholars who believe that Mark ends in this way rather abruptly because it's part of his artistry, because he wants to force us to think. And he wants, to, he wants to help us understand that we are in this story now. So in other words, he leaves off here. And the question for you and me that he wants us to think about is this. Okay, so Jesus is risen. Where am I in this story? Jesus is risen. How am I going to respond to this as a witness. Jesus is risen. How am I going to react to this? Jesus is risen. How am I going to fill in this blank? Jesus is going before the disciples and he wants them to join him in Galilee. Where is Jesus calling you to 
join him. One night, two friends took a walk on this path. This is a place called Addison's Walk. It's in Oxford, England. And the two friends that were walking down this path on the night of September 19th, 1931, where J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, and C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and Mere Christianity. They were both professors at Oxford. Lewis, at this point, was not yet a Christian. He was asking many questions. Tolkien was already a Christian. And the two men had had conversations. They had been having conversations about Christianity. But on this particular night... Their conversation was a life-changing moment for C.S. Lewis. On this night as they walked down this path, the two men talked about stories. They knew a lot about stories. And they talked about how there are so many myths that, ha that, that have happy endings. And the attraction that we have to happy endings. Now the resurrection of Christ is the ultimate happy ending. And C.S. Lewis asked Tolkien, he said, well, you know, how do we know that the story of the resurrection is just not another myth that points to a deeper reality? And Tolkien responded to him by saying, that the resurrection of Jesus is the reality to which all of the other stories point. Because it's true. Let's pray together. That conversation proved to be a tipping point in the life of C.S. Lewis. And maybe this Easter Sunday is going to be a tipping point in your life. Maybe you came here today yearning for grace, but wondering if God will receive you, a sinner like you. What if I told you that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead for sinners just like you and me, for people who have failed miserably, for people who have blown it badly time and time again. What if I told you that Christianity is all about new beginnings and abundant life and eternal life because Jesus rose and that that invitation is extended to sinners just like us? I am telling you that because it's true. Maybe you came in here today bewildered by the brokenness that you see all around you in the world, in the news, in lives all around you. Hey, maybe even in your own life. What if I told you that because Jesus rose, that there is healing for our brokenness and that because he rose, it also means that he's coming again to renew the whole creation and to make this world right again 
and that we are invited to be a part of that forever through faith in him. I am telling you that because it's true. Maybe you came here today doubting the reality of the resurrection. You can cross from doubt to belief today, not by just wishing that the resurrection is true, but crossing with your eyes wide open based on the credible testimony of hundreds of eyewitnesses who were willing to give their lives for it and who turned the world upside down. Howard, what are you gonna do with that evidence? Turn to Jesus and trust him. Trust him, receive him as your savior and your Lord, your King today. This can't be of moderate importance. Either this is the most important thing in the world or if the resurrection didn't happen, it's of no importance whatsoever, but you, you have to choose. You have to get off the fence. You can't remain in the middle. There is no neutral ground here. those of us who know Jesus we're called upon today to take our faith that seriously with the understanding that there are people meeting today there are Christians meeting today on this Easter in parts of the world where they could be martyred for doing so are we willing to take it that seriously are we willing to to risk all to give all for Christ does he deserve anything less Father we pray that you would speak to our hearts on this Easter Sunday Lord I pray for anyone here who, who came into this room today not knowing Christ as Savior I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in their hearts and open their hearts to turn to Jesus and trust him and follow him as Savior and risen King. Lord, may you draw all of us closer to your side as your disciples. Fill us with hope for the future because of what Jesus has done. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. If you're here today and God's speaking to your heart, there's a need in your life for prayer. You want to talk with someone about knowing Christ. You want to talk with someone about knowing him better. There's a need for prayer in your life. We would love to, to talk with you and to pray with you. Um, we'll be here for you at the front during this time of invitation and after our service today. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. 
I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you wanna spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to Him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where His love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.